I would ask that you please turn in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. So we'll be looking at chapter 10 and verses 28 to 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 31. Now verses 17 to 20, excuse me, 17 to 31 really form one section, and I've broken that up into three parts so that we can adequately deal with the with uh, the matter and the content here. But for the matter of context, let us begin starting in verse 17 once more as we bring this section now to a conclusion. So let's start Matthew chapter 10, start reading in verse 17. And as he was getting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow Me. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful for He had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to His disciples, How difficult it will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at His words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Now we've heard it said that if you tell a lie long enough, people will begin to believe it. One of the, the great lies that many people have fallen prey to is the lie that the Christian life is a life of subtraction. That the Christian life is a life of a loss. Right, loss of freedom, loss of fun, loss of happiness, loss of possessions. This, in fact, was my own understanding. When I was a teenager and in my early adulthood, I told myself I was not going to come to faith in Christ until I got really old. Because I didn't want to lose out on life. I, didn't, I thought I was going to not be able to enjoy life as a Christian. I wasn't able to, to live life if I became a Christian. 
This is what the rich young ruler himself believed also. Which is why he walked away disheartened after the Lord called upon him to leave his possessions and come and follow him. Right? This rich young ruler was under the assumption that coming to Christ, that becoming Christ's disciple meant a loss of happiness, meant a loss of comfort. And yet those of us who sit here today who are believers, right, know that there is nothing further from the truth for those of us who belong to the Lord. Now yes, the chief end of man in salvation is to glorify God. But as George Bethune in his lectures on the Heidelberg Catechism said, he points out that the glory of our Maker and Redeemer is closely connected with the happiness of all who faithfully obey. He goes on to say, it was that He, that is God, might have the satisfaction of seeing a family of creatures reflecting in their happiness His own blessedness. It is that He may behold a family of penitent sinners happy again and forever that He established the plan of redemption. And so you see, true happiness, true joy, true comfort belongs alone to the saints. Right? In fact, the opposite is true of the lie that the world has taken in, isn't it? For it is for those who do not believe in Christ, it is for those who do not believe the Christian faith that happiness, comfort, and joy does not exist. I was wrong all those years ago to think that as a Christian I wouldn't be able to live life as I found out and as you all have found out. It is only through faith in Christ that you now can live life and live life as you have been created for and as life has been intended to be lived. In fact, it is the unbeliever who is unable now to live life as God has intended it to be lived and as He has created us for because of sin. Right? I liken the world's buying into this lie as being akin to buying into the reality of a magic trick. We've all seen a magic trick, haven't we? Someone takes a deck of cards and does some, some real cool trick. Right? It appears real to us as we see it, doesn't it? Right? It, it seems real to our senses, but it is not. Right? It is not. It is, it is false. It is a lie. And yet we buy into the lie. Hook, line, and sinker. We don't see that sleight of hand that they did. And this is the folly of the world. Right? They've bought into the lie, believing that they can find happiness, comfort, and joy outside of faith in Christ. Right? This is the lie of the world. This is the folly of the world. Right? Believing that when God calls us to deny ourselves and to come after Christ, that God does not give us far more than it is that we could ever give up for Christ. Right? This is the folly of the world, believing that the Christian faith is a faith of subtraction. When in fact, that can be nothing further from the truth. As Jesus tells us here today, the Christian life is a life of addition. The Christian life is a life of multiplication. Which is why I entitled the sermon then, Giving Up 
but still gaining. And so this is what we want to focus our attention on this morning. And we are going to do so under three points this morning. The three points are this. The first is motivation. Motivation. We want to ask, what is our motivation for giving up and gaining what Christ has to offer? Point two will be promise. Promise. What is it that Christ promises us if we forsake those things that impede our fellowship with Him? And then third and finally, it will be fidelity. Fidelity. As Jesus encourages the apostles at the very end, telling them that what's important to the Lord is faithfulness. Right? That's what's important to the Lord. Not our status. Not our wealth. Not our possessions. And so let's look together at point one. Motivation. This comes from really verse 28. So please look with me there once more. We read in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 27, in the parallel account, Matthew adds that Peter says, What then shall we have? Right? So what Peter's saying is, We left everything and followed you. What then shall we have, Lord? Right? The apostles. Right? See what Jesus has just said about the difficulty of inheriting the kingdom of God. They've just seen the rich young ruler and his unwillingness to give up all to enter into the kingdom. And they look to Jesus and they say to Him, what then is for us? Right? We don't have riches, but we have done what this man did not do. Right? We have left our homes. We have left our families. We have left all of our comforts. What's our prize? What's our reward? What's to become of us? Perhaps what lies beneath this question is still some earthly mindedness. Perhaps it's still some earthly prosperity that is on their mind. Still under the assumption that sometime in the near future Christ is going to establish an earthly kingdom. And so they're thinking, right? What's, what's our good? What's, what's our benefit? What do we receive for doing what this man did not do? And this is though really how we all think by nature. Don't we? We are always looking to receive something for what we've done. Right? We're always looking to receive a reward. We want a reward for our obedience. I did this for you. Now what do I get in return? And Satan himself understands this. Satan knows this. This is the exact same thing Satan accuses Job of in the opening chapter of the book of Job. Job says, this is the only reason why Job follows and loves you, God. Remember, the Lord says, Job is my servant. Job is upright and blameless. And Satan responds in verses 9-11. through 11, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand. Touch all that He has and He will curse you to your face. Right? Satan believed Job's motivation for loving God and following God was what God had given to him. 
He says, take away that motivation for Him to love you. And He will curse you just like the unbeliever. And sadly, for how many people today is that true of? You take away that which they love. You take away those things which they believe are rewards or blessings from God. Whether that be their job, their home, their health, their family. And what often happens? They turn and they curse. And they blame God. I wonder if, if Jesus never promised us a reward, would we still follow and serve Him? If Jesus never promised us a reward, would we still follow and serve Him? I think for many the answer is no. Right? Many Christians today follow, seek, serve God out of want of something from Him. And it's usually a want of something created. They want something earthly, something temporal from His hand in order to fulfill their desires. Right? We see this in Scripture when Jesus was here on earth. It is no different then as it is today. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 25 to 27, after the feeding of the 5,000, we're told the next day Jesus crosses over to the other side of the sea. And this crowd seeks Him out and they find Him. And they say this, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. You see, the, the sinner right, comes to Christ in order that Christ might give him something. Right? He's looking for the reward. That's his motivation for coming to Christ. They want food, drink, money, possessions, comfort, happiness but they seek them all outside of faith in Christ. And so whatever good they receive, once it's used up, right, they lose that happiness and then they go searching for something else that is going to make them happy. Something else that is going to satisfy their souls. But their soul will never be satisfied by the good which God gives them because God is not satisfying to them. Right? God is not satisfying to the sinner. This is because they do not love God. But rather they love only that which God provides them. Right? The sinner does not love God. They love the reward. They love the blessings. They love the things He provides His creation. But this is why, brothers and sisters, our primary motivation for following the Lord is not to be because of what He gives to us. It is not to be because of what He gives to us. Now, I want us to to hear my words carefully. I said the primary motivation is not to be because of what He gives us. That does not mean that the reward is not a motivation. Or it does not mean that it's wrong to look to the reward that He has promised us. Oftentimes in His Word, doesn't Jesus use the reward as an encouragement to to, to cause us to continue on and persevere in the faith. He, he points us to the reward. And so it's not wrong, but our primary motivation in the Christian life for following and serving God ought to be our love of God. 
It ought to be our love of God. That is what our motivation is. When love of God is our motivation, that is what is going to keep us serving Him when everything seems to be going wrong in life. It is love of God that is going to keep us serving Him and following Him and walking faithfully before Him, even when it appears to us that He has deserted us. It is love of God that is going to keep us through those diff and dark trials in our lives. Oftentimes, I think it is during those times right, that God is testing our love for Him, isn't He? Right? He's taking things away. He's putting us in certain conditions and circumstances to say, do you really love me as He did Job? Or do you just love me because of what I've given to you? Isn't that what He did with Abraham? He blessed Abraham with a son, his own heir. And then He says, now go sacrifice him. Seeing this, Abraham truly loved me above all. And so this is the reason why we give up and forsake anything that God demands. It's out of love of God. Not because we're looking for reward. As we have to understand, it would be our duty to love and obey God even if there never was a reward. That is still the duty of man. Even if He promised us nothing, we would still be obligated to seek God's glory. And why? It's because of who He is. Because of who He is. Not because of what He gives. It's because He deserves it. It's because He's worthy of it. And this is what the sinner must come to understand. They will never deny God His honor. They will never be able to deny God His glory. Because as we're told... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. He will get His glory. He will get it one way or another. And yet, brothers and sisters, the good news is that He has set His love upon us. We are the elect of God. We are His children. We belong to His body. We are His people. And so we must understand that it is only the privilege of the elect to love God. It is only the privilege of the elect to love God. God becomes lovely to us only through Christ. Right? This is a love that cannot be generated by man. Right? Man cannot stir himself up to love God, but rather, love of God is set in motion by the work of the Spirit who kindles that love in our hearts for God. And so it is out of this love that we happily forsake all for God. Love for God. Love for the things of God. Love for the glory of God. And love for God alone is our primary motivation for following and serving God. Jesus Himself says in verse 29 that no one who gives up house, brother, sister, mother, father, children, or lands for My sake and for the Gospel who will not receive a hundredfold I want us to see, right? He doesn't say that anyone who gives up these things out of motivation for receiving better things is going to receive them, right? Like if you have a, you know, an old rust bucket of a car and you have a neighbor who doesn't have a car and so you give your neighbor your car so that God will give you a better and new car. No, that's not what God is saying. He is saying our motivation is only for Christ. And the Gospel, our motivation isn't to be for anything else. It's not to be for the reward. 
Anyone who does something for the reward can expect to receive nothing other than the reward that men give to you. Because seeking the reward doesn't demonstrate love of God. Seeking a reward demonstrates love for self. And so each of us here today need to ask ourselves as we look in the mirror this evening, why do I serve God? Why do I obey His law and His statutes? Why do I forsake those things that He demands of me? What is my motivation for following Christ? Because giving up all, giving up lands and family and home for any other reason than Christ, the Gospel, and out of it, love of God, as a motivation, it will be done in vain. It will be of no value to you. Because it is the only one who gives up these things described and for the reasons described to whom God makes the promise. And this takes us to point two, which is the promise. Look with me at verses 29 and 30, please. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the Gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So we see first, as I just mentioned, the promise is made only to those who forsake or lose these things for Christ in the Gospel. For no other reason can you expect the promise if you forsake these things for other, any other reason other than for Christ in the Gospel. And then secondly, what I want us to see and what we're going to focus our attention on here is that the reward that Jesus then promises is to be experienced when? Right? Both now and in the age to come. Right, both now and in the age to come. There are a lot of Christians out there who have it stuck in their heads right, that we can't have anything here on earth. We can't enjoy anything here on earth. We always have to be super serious so we can never laugh. We have to, to live in poverty and always suffer. And it's not until you get to heaven that finally your fortunes turn and all of a sudden you can have joy and happiness and experience uh, abundance in life and be able to enjoy your life. But clearly, this is not the case. Jesus says the promise is a hundredfold, not only in the age to come, but it is also for the promise of us now. So how are we to understand this? Now obviously, Jesus is not speaking literally. He is not speaking literally. Like if I give up my house, I get a hundred houses in return. Or if I give up my one wife, I get a hundred wives in return. And there's a joke to be made there, which I won't, I won't make. I'll resist the urge. Right? But a hundredfold is really just an expression to convey to us plentiful. Right? Much more. And so the promise is that those who give up what is precious to us now for the sake of Christ in the Gospel will receive a hundredfold now and in the age to come. But then we have to ask, how is this 
a promise applied to us in this present age. Right? Because we have to... I mean, everyone notices, right? The, the promise here is made to the apostles, right? And yet, what happens to them? They don't have ha- uh, homes and, and lands and possessions. right? They lose all of these when they come to Christ. So, so what is it that, that, that Jesus means by this? What are the saints here promised by Christ? What could they at their time, as well as us now, look to expect from Christ? Right? What is He promising to us? Well, it is this. It's the blessings of the incomparable God. It's the blessings of the incomparable God. It's hope. It's joy. It's comfort. It's happiness in God that makes up for and far exceeds everything that it is that we have given up. It's a greater measure of spiritual gifts. It's a greater portion of the Spirit. It's belonging to a new family. Belonging to a new body. Forming new relationships that are more valuable than any relationship that you have ever had or experienced prior to that. It is also being able to enjoy your possessions that God has given to you in a way that the unbeliever cannot enjoy them. Right? The unbeliever is worried about what they have, about losing it, about replacing what they lost, about their future and having enough. As believers, we can rejoice in all things, knowing that everything created by God is good and is to be received with thanksgiving and to be used to glorify God. Right? We understand, we have the, the proper perspective of goods, don't we? Right? That God gives to us when He wants. He takes what He wants, but He will always give us enough. He will always provide for us, for our good and for His glory. And when we have that proper perspective of possessions, then you can enjoy your possessions, unlike the unbeliever. This is why it's a lie to say that when you become a Christian, you lose out. It's because you don't. Right? Jesus Himself says, you will gain, and you will gain much more, and what you gain will be much more valuable. And that is because when the incomparable God becomes your God, you become incomparably blessed. Right? When the incomparable God becomes your God, you become incomparably blessed. Right? The rich young ruler walks away with all of his possessions. Unhappy though, why is that? Because right? his God was his flesh. His God was the world. Neither of which could make him happy. They are weak and impotent gods which leave us dissatisfied, uncertain, and miserable. You see, rather, it is those who do not have God who have lost in this world. It is those who do not have God who have been subtracted from in their life. It is those who do not have God in this world that need to be added to. David says in Psalm 144, verse 15, Happy! Or blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Why are we blessed? Because God is ours. We have title to Him. We have claim to Him as our God. He dwells with us. 
Right? His presence is with us, and with that comes innumerable blessings. Which is why David can say in Psalm 16, verse 11, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, this is what the world misses out on. This is what they don't understand. And sadly, this is what many Christians miss out on and don't understand. It is that. There is no greater. There is no higher. And there is no more valuable gift to be given than God Himself. Right? God can give us greater temporal blessings, can He not? He can give us better cars. He can give us bigger homes. He can give us new friends. He can give us greater honor among men. He can add years to our life. But He cannot give to us anything greater than Himself. This is why if someone says that the Christian life is a life of loss, you can emphatically say, no, it is not. In fact, it is the unbeliever who is lost out. Because the Christian gains a hundredfold. And he gains the greatest gift of all, which is God Himself. This is why, brothers and sisters, we could lose everything. We could lose all of our possessions today. We could lose every dime to our name. We could, like Job, lose children and property and health and still be the happiest, wealthiest, most blessed people in all the earth because God is more than all of those things combined. And it's not even close. Also, what I want us to see is that we gain as Christians... Something that we never had as unbelievers. And that is something to claim as our own. Think about it. What is it that the unbeliever values? It is their money. It is their job. It is their home. It is their car. It is their health. It is their family. But what are all of those things? Not theirs. Not theirs. Everything that they have belongs to the Lord. And it is not until through faith in Christ and the promise of the Gospel that we now as believers have something to claim as our own. And that something is God. We now claim God as our own. It is the believer who now is able to cry out, My God! My God! which the psalmist does throughout the Psalter. Knowing that He is ours. But this is exactly what He has promised us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Jeremiah 31-33. I will be your God. You will be My people. And now as our God, we receive a hundredfold, not only in the age to come, but now, as it's His power that protects us. It's God's wisdom that directs us. It's His mercy that assists us. It's His grace that acquits us. It's His justice that accepts us. His faithfulness that keeps us. His Word that saves us. And His Spirit which now sanctifies us. This is the hundredfold that Jesus is talking about in the Scriptures today. This is the hundredfold that the apostles experienced after the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. 
This is why Peter can still say, I have no silver or gold. This is why Paul can say, I'm hungry and thirsty and have been shipwrecked and beaten. This is why John can be banished on the island of Patmos and still say, I have gained all in Christ Jesus. This is the hundredfold now that they experience in its fullness as they dwell with our Lord in heaven. Yet before we turn to our third and final point, there's one last thing that I want to point out for us, which is the difference between the hundredfold that we receive now and the hundredfold that we receive in heaven. And this is an important distinction that must be made. Right? Because today a vast majority of Christians right, want the gospel, but what they want with it is all of earthly possessions with it. Right? They want uh, worldly happiness. They want comfort. They want no struggle, right? They want no trouble in their life, but that is because they have trusted in a cheap gospel. Right? Because persecution affliction and suffering is always going to accompany the saints. That is Jesus' promise. You are going to have a hundredfold, but you are going to have that hundredfold with persecution. Right? We are going to have it until the day we are called home to be with the Lord. As one Puritan puts it, all of God's promises are made with the cross in mind. We might say all of God's promises to us are couched in the cross. And yet, brothers and sisters, we see that no amount of affliction, no amount of persecution to the church will ever stop us from receiving that plentiful array of blessings that our Lord has promised His church. Nothing will be able to stop the promise of God. This then leads us to our third and final point, which is fidelity. Look with me at verse 31. As Jesus says this, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now there are really two dominant positions on how uh, people take this verse. Okay, So the first is this, that the first who will be last are those who maybe started out strong, but eventually faded away and fell away from the faith. And so the first to our last are excluded from the kingdom. That's the first position. The second view, and the one which I subscribe to, is that the first to our last are those who perhaps appear first between, uh, b- before men and women in the church. Right? They appear first. Perhaps because of their, their many talents. Maybe it's because of their possessions. Maybe it's because of their wealth. And so they're looked highly upon. But they will be last in the kingdom, yet not excluded from the kingdom. They'll be last in the kingdom, but not excluded from it. And those who will be first in the kingdom are those who are viewed as last now. Right? Those who are viewed as being behind everyone else. Those who are, who are viewed as insignificant right now. And I think that this fits well with how this phrase first and last, has been used throughout Scripture. In fact, if you remember, we see this. As the apostles quarreled with one another, what does Jesus say to them? When they quarreled, who's going to be first in the kingdom? What does He say? If anyone is to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. But we see both last and first belong to the kingdom. 
Last isn't excluded from the kingdom. Both belong to the kingdom. Right? So the last are those who are, who are faithful in serving, in loving, right? in giving of themselves, of putting the interests of others ahead of themselves, of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, of walking humbly and living penitently. It is these who are viewed as last who are first in God's eyes. And those who just kind of cruise along who will be last in the kingdom. And so, after correcting the apostles' teaching about what our true motivation is, right, and after teaching them and informing them of God's promise, He now cautions them about growing cold and weary in the faith, right, in resting on their own stature among the other saints, right, believing that they should be first in the kingdom because of who they are. Right? It's really a call to persevere in the Christian life unto the very end. That's what this is. Because only then will we have that hundredfold that awaits us in heaven if we persevere unto the end. And so what does the Christian life consist of? Well, let's look to Christ. Right? He humbled Himself, doing all that the Father had demanded of Him. And so we are to do the same. We are to look to the example of Christ. So often if we don't say it, we, we think it, don't we? Right? What is the least that I can lose? What is the least that I can give up in order to still maintain my grasp on Christ now and in the life to come? Right? We oftentimes think, even if you don't want to admit it, how comfortable can I keep living now and still have Christ? But it is these who will be last. Those who seek to do the very least, they will be last. But what we all need to be asking ourselves internally, right, when we are home all by ourselves and we are thinking about the things of God, right, is what can I do for God's kingdom? What can I give up for God's kingdom? Right, what can I part with that is stopping me from serving God's kingdom? What can I part with that is inhibiting me from being more useful to God's kingdom? That is the questions that we should be asking. How can I be last in the kingdom in the eyes of men, but first in the kingdom of the eyes, in the eyes of God, right? Who knows the hearts of men? That should be the question that we ask. And so whatever it is that is stopping us, Whatever it is that is hindering us, whatever it is that is inhibiting us from following and serving and giving up as we should, we must pray, right? We must get on bended knee and ask that the Lord would help to crucify those passions and those affections in us, right? We must pray daily to forsake the love for those things. If you are able to, if it is a possession, get rid of that possession. Get rid of whatever it is that is keeping you from forsaking all for Christ. You must be willing to part with land, home, family member, or friend. Be willing to exchange anything that it is for that crown of righteousness. Exchange, give it all up for perfect rest in Christ. Let love of God, let love of Christ, let the love of our message of salvation be the catalyst or our motivation to cause us to serve Him. Yet, re yet remember that whatever it is that we give up, all that we forsake, 
for Christ, we will, we will be repaid for much more bountifully, much more plentifully. Remember that he who gives up all for Christ gains God, who is the greatest gift of all. He who has not given up for God, for Christ's sake, has not God. And so he has nothing. And then also be aware that our status and our position is not important. Right? But fidelity to God is. And so continue to faithfully, right, uprightly, blamelessly serve Him as He is the incomparable God who has caused us to be His and caused you, who are inco- and caused you to be incomparably then blessed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We would pray that You would reveal the truth of Your Word to us. That You would implant this message deep within our hearts and in our minds. That our motivation for giving up all would be for our love of God. That our motivation would be love of Christ, love for the message of the Word, that we would not have selfish ambition and selfish motivations, that we would not express ourselves in self-love, but in love for God. Likewise, Father, we thank You for the promise we have, not only now, but forevermore. We ask that You would make that promise real to us, uh, that You would reveal uh, the the reality of that promise throughout our daily life. And then, Father, You would cause us to to long for the fullness of that promise that we will have with Christ forevermore. Please cause us, Father, to, to be last in the kingdom by being servant of all, counting ourselves least in the kingdom, counting one another as more important and one, one another's interest is more important than our own. And we only can do this through the help and aid of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so, it is in His name that we pray. Amen.